Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. All right. Welcome to the TalkScript podcast. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Neil Roberts. Uh, it's an honor just to be nominated. Paul Shannon. Howdy, y'all. And we have a special guest today, Alex Russell. Hey. We wanted to bring Alex on. There was a bit of a, a dust-up on Twitter. This has been a couple weeks now. There was a tweet that was sent out from Lori Voss from NPM. What was the content of it, Alex? I mean, <laughs> you're asking me about Lori's tweet. All right. Um, I have come to subsequently learn in the form of a joke, which was not apparent to me at the time. I am familiar with the Futurama joke form, stop exploding, you cowards. Usually the, the jokes of this form take the all upper caps and then they start with stop. This contribution to the form was phrased, just add React to the browser, you cowards. <laughs> it included cowards on the uppercase, but the rest of it didn't really strike me as being... Um... Anyhow, there was a long discussion afterwards and I was attempting, I hope, maybe in some small way succeeded, in trying to outline the contours of why it is that when folks tell browser engineers to just put things in the browser, it's always harder than it looks. Yeah, for sure. And when I first read the tweet and I and when I read your response back, lots of things from the past started coming up in my <laughs> mind. It was it was like, wow, this feels like ten years ago. Full disclosure, Alex used to work on the Dojo Project, was one of the leads of the Dojo Project. Myself and Neil worked with Alex 10 years ago. I like to think that the statute of limitations is up on our crimes, though. I mean, it could be. I mean, they're kind of in the past. I don't even know if they're in. They're in history somewhere. <laughs> Alex basically taught me JavaScript, so I might have a bigger conflict. <laughs> <laughs> But what I thought was interesting was some of these sentiment of just put X in the browser, you know, and I get that it was a joke. I kind of took it as a joke and I figured Alex was just ignoring the joke and responding because this was actually something that we've dealt with before. I had no idea it was a joke, so. Okay. <laughs> it was definitely tongue in cheek. And yeah, Alex, it was probably a teachable moment to say like, hey, <laughs> maybe we don't want to put everything in the browser. I mean, we did that already, and that was ActiveX, right? We could do everything with the browser at that point. Browser was done. I think ActiveX is materially different, right? Well, let's get into it, right? Because there's classes of putting X in the browser, right? One of them is to just jailbreak it, right? Like, you put up the poster, and then you drill your way to freedom, and then you use it sparingly, you hope, and only when needed. You know, that's a well-worn path, and that's uh, Silverlight and Flash and ActiveX, you know, and the long history of NPAPI and, you know, the whole mess of plugins. The applets are a good idea too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so those are all enabled through the same very narrow channel, right? So if you look at the way ActiveX worked in the browser or the way NPAPI worked in, i.e. for ActiveX and NPAPI for other browsers, the interface for these things is tiny. It's actually not very large. Like you don't ask the thing on the other side to do any networking for you, right? The surface area is just, there's a function over there, call it. It's literally just FFI. And that is attractive for talking to other binaries. It is not attractive for creating 
any other kind of a protocol or a contract, right? So it's a very low-level thing that until the emergence of WASM or maybe even type to race earlier, like we didn't even have a way of talking about what that contract looked like from JavaScript. There was just no way of like modeling it. So it was very kind of a extraordinary way of punching out and just asking someone else to intercede on your behalf to the OS gods. It's very like old school DLLs, like just throw it in and you can have access to the world type. Yeah, very much. And that has been extraordinarily productive in terms of just, quote unquote, just getting something done, right? Like, I don't think anyone can argue today that Flash was not a net good for the web, right? On the one hand, it created an internal competition that caused browsers in the early 2000s to really get their stuff together and start to add things like the video tag and the canvas element and really improve JavaScript performance to support those use cases. So it's nice to have the competition. (laughs) I mentioned this before. We've seen calls like this in history, so to speak. I remember when we were working on Dojo, it was just put jQuery in the browser. <laughs> so it was just put prototype in the browser before that. Well, yeah, just put prototype in the browser. You know, just put Scriptaculous in the browser, just put jQuery in the browser. For folks who, who may not be aware of, of the long and tortured history that brought us back together, <laughs> uh, once upon a time, I did work on Dojo, but about 10 years ago, I became a trader to my class and went to Google to work on a project called Chrome Frame. And I've been working on Chrome and the web platform ever since. So I kind of went through the looking glass a little bit. And you know, the conversation that browser engineers have about web content is kind of different. It's not just a could we, it's a we can, should we? With a very long-term view attached to it. So anything that goes into the web platform, you're stuck with. People talk about maintenance burdens. Old stable platforms are generally inhabited by people who are trying to keep the lights on, which is non-trivial, and who are doing their best under a sea of consequences from decisions that were made without their input and without foreknowledge something like 10 to 20 years ago. And the DOM and JavaScript and CSS all represent relatively fine examples of that species. They have the pain of now heavily used contracts. The set of things that we regret in CSS has almost no relationship to the set of things that we can change. (laughs) So... (laughs) And the same is true of JavaScript, even more true of JavaScript in some cases. Browser engineers historically haven't had the best data about the corpus. So there's some knowledge that your product is used on billions of computers that you don't own or control. And the content that runs on your platform is also, it's running in your sandbox, if you will, but it's not under your control, at least not day-to-day control. And that's just part of the ownership equation. So It has only been in the last, I'd say, five years with the user metrics analysis system that Chrome has in place to do statistical sampling. And then some of the work that I know that our colleagues over at Microsoft on the Edge team did with their telemetry, that browser engineers have started to get a really good handle on what's actually happening or what's actually being used in the wild. And when I say good handle, remember, that's a super probabilistic sipping through a straw kind of an understanding where you can only ask very particular questions only of a certain form. And if you'd like to understand anything higher level, well, you'll have to either try to triangulate it from those things or use multiple data sets and then run some some analysis. So just understanding what you can turn off if you wanted to winds up being a multi-quarter project. Because remember, to get the instrumentation into the platform about what's being used and what's not, you may have to go instrument a hot path. And that hot path is something where you might lose a benchmark if you put the wrong code in the middle of that. So these things are heavily over-constrained in their ability to be malleable. And so 
One of the good things that's happened in the Chromium era has been that we have gotten some religion about instrumenting as much of the web platform as we can sort of get away with. And that has worked really, really well for DOM APIs. And so we've been able, as a result of that analysis, to turn some things off. So you'll see on the Blink Dev mailing list, which is where a lot of the business happens, a series of quote-unquote intent to deprecate and remove. And those are proposals from Chrome engineers who have hopefully done all of this analysis to come back to us with a proposal for what they believe the impact is going to be and what timeline they think they could try a deprecation on and what their plan will be if it doesn't work out. And if it all goes to Hades, what is the recourse? Like, is there a way to switch it back on real soon like? And so that means that a removal or a deprecation is, again, a multi-step, multi-quarter process, even in the best of cases. So you can imagine if that's what you're staring down and some fraction of your team that you'd really like to be spending adding features is doing that instead, you will become skittish about just adding anything, (laughs) if that makes sense. Because you might regret it, right? And if you kind of, quote unquote, just do anything, like um, you wind up with unknowably large compatibility risk. To give you an example, there were some array methods, some object prototype methods on array that we wanted to add at TC39 back in the ES6 era. And I can't remember exactly what it was. It was, I think it was some iteration method. And we had to rename it because there was enough tools from a particular era laying around in the ecosystem that it conflicted with the name. And that meant that it tried to do the right feature detection, but it didn't. And that code was not movable in the ecosystem. And therefore, whenever we wanted to add anything to the language, we kind of had to look and see what kind of shadows the heavily used frameworks were using. And remember, like, tools wasn't jQuery. <laughs> MooTools was very popular at the time, but it never got into that sort of stratospheric popularity. But you can still break enough web content, which from the perspective of a browser vendor is kind of the third rail. Every browser that has had to compete for market share comes up through the school of, well, your, your browser doesn't work on my bank website, so I'm not using it. And what you learn from that experience is that compatibility is king. So every browser engineer's base motive is compatibility and then performance. The second most effective way to motivate a browser engineer is to publish a benchmark that shows that their browser is slower on some common operation than the other browser, right? And suddenly all the protests about how hard it will be seemingly melt away. It's kind of fascinating. My old boss, Linus Upson, used to say, uh, phrase your question in the form of a benchmark. That's absolutely a huge motivator for very similar competitive reasons. So if you think about the evolutionary dynamics of the browser ecosystem, the people who tend these engines have learned the lessons of that evolution, and they are hard won. So it's very difficult to convince them that they should suddenly kind of just drop those lessons. And that's where you get to standardization, because it winds up being a... uh, a weapons-down kind of environment where everyone can, with relatively similar motives, have a conversation about what are the smallest set of things that will have the most value and move things to the best position in the most expeditious way. Now, that's not how it often works out, but (laughs) that's one of the motives that causes us to to do that and to go to those open forums rather than just, quote-unquote, just taking a JavaScript library and whacking it into the cache prematurely. When you look at a browser, it does seem like oh yeah, they could just add this API and my, my life would be simpler, but there's a whole lot of baggage to go along with, especially if they get the API wrong. I often think it's simpler to spend someone else's money. <laughs> it's usually my preference, in fact. Is that where frameworks come in? It's somebody else's money? 
Uh, frameworks are interesting because you wind up, as a web developer, spending your own money on those, right? Asking browser vendors to upgrade the platform is asking, it's basically asking for a, what we think about is you're asking for a special purpose tax break, <laughs> right? There's some set of things that cost a particular amount. I think of the way you get to reasonable performance, at least on the mobile web today, is you, you start with a budget. And so your budget is, let's say it's 150K of JavaScript. It should probably be less than that, but let's say that that's what it is. So you maybe get 50K of CSS and a couple hundred K of images and you know 20 or 30K of HTML and then 150K of JavaScript for a pretty JavaScript-heavy site. Big spender. <laughs> I know, I know. So the thing that I wind up seeing a lot of is if you start with that kind of a budgeting approach, I mean, you can think about your library as a way to level up the platform to some particular point where you can start to work with it in a kind of either a uniform or more productive way. And then what you can afford over and above that framework is, you know, the headroom you've got over your tax rate. So you pay something in taxes for your basic infrastructure. So that's your polyfills and your framework because um, you can't get the rest of the app even started without those things. And so if you think about a good dynamic with frameworks and the platform, when the platform rises up to meet you, you need less framework potentially. So if you, for instance, go from version 1 to version 3 of Polymer, you can frequently shrink the app by a good 15 or 20%, maybe larger, just because you wind up paying less in that core infrastructure because the platform is now the thing you're relying on. You don't have to load as many polyfills. You don't have to load as much extra gunk. So that's a good dynamic. And so that's a tax break, right? Some capability got added to the platform. And as a result, the effective tax rate that you were paying goes down because you can lean on the platform by serving differentially. You can serve different content to browsers that know this upgraded thing versus the ones that don't and reduce your tax burden, if you will, right? You don't then have to send all the polyfills and all the framework down the wire. You can send the minimal subset that that browser needs. And so... When we talk about putting stuff into the browser, that's kind of the deal we're making, right? We're, we're lowering the price of doing something, and there is a evidentiary burden that I think we should be paying attention to about when it is appropriate to do that. So the downside of this idea is that we don't really have good data about this right now. The HTTP archive is probably our best corpus at the moment of these kinds of semantics, but we're not really collecting them. And in a lot of cases, those semantics wind up getting pretty pretty buried in the Turing tar pit. So you, you end up in a situation where because they wind up all happening in JavaScript at runtime, you know, the way we used to do it, and there's no kind of declarative hook for them. I mean, remember Dojo Attach Point? That was kind of our declarative hook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where you could take a, a regular DOM element. jQuery had, you know, you could use a class name. So jQuery UI had a pretty you know, robust set of class names associated with it. And that kind of style of construction gives you a, a hook that maybe a crawler or maybe even a browser that was instrumented could go look at and see to try to understand which kinds of components are common. But if you think of it from the perspective of the research project to go understand which semantics are common and then which things should be built into the browser, that winds up being really interesting. Now, you can do something similar for JavaScript, right? You can go and look and see what's prevalent. And so when we went and we started to to upgrade the web platform back in 2011 and 12, in a project that I co-led with uh, Dmitry Glaskov and Alex Kamarowski, that led to some of the ES6 things that we did because we were able to go do more survey-based analysis. It was sort of less numerical, unfortunately, 
But we were able to go look around and be like, well, all of these frameworks that are heavily used, including a bunch of internal Google ones, all have some sort of class declaration thing. We should definitely use the class keyword that's been sitting there and have it mean something that is more or less common between them. It only took us five years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But but we, we got that one done. Uh, the same thing with promises, right, where you end up with a minimal subset of the thing that could potentially be plausible. You know, we proposed async and await back in, I want to say, 2011. I think we got that one done in 2015, maybe 2016. So the lag on a relatively small semantic addition to the platform because of its need to integrate really deeply and be fully explained in terms of everything else around it winds up being, again, a very high bar. But then the design process is so much harder than it looks from the outside. Libraries get to float along on the assumption that no one is going to poke at their leaky abstractions. And I abuse the heck out of that as a library author. Absolutely. (laughs) Count on it. But the web platform has a different burden, right? Because if you just make those chinks available, those wind up being security bugs. And that winds up being a bad time. So we have to fully specify the behavior of these things and make it interoperable. Yeah, so if you were to take a modern framework like React or Dojo or anything like that and put it into the browser, like was suggested, you have less of an opportunity to make any kind of major revisions to that API as well, don't you? Otherwise, you risk breaking any backward compatibility. Yeah, so in my sort of oblique response thread to Lori, one of the things I pointed out was that it would be amazing for me to try to understand almost grenade tossing and then standing back to get the community to say which one and only version of React they meant. Is it the future version that's not released yet? (laughs) Is it the one that's most popular today, which is probably from a couple of years ago? Is it the one that was just released? Like one of the things that we saw from the Ajax CDN era, and I can't remember who did the research and I, I really wish I could remember, but there was some really great research about this question of quote unquote, just add jQuery to the browser. And what was discovered was that there might have been a pretty strong overall cache hit rate if you were looking at use of jQuery in Chrome's caches. But if you looked at use of jQuery by subversion, 1.3.12, 1.3.13, 1.3.15, what you saw was that you would get a significantly smaller slice. There was never a perfect version that everyone agreed to. The idea of caching, quote-unquote, jQuery was a platonic ideal about a proposed surface area that wasn't standardized and whose details were changing rapidly. And so what, in fact, people wound up referencing was a lightly cacheable, infrequently hit version of a binary contract. And so there are reasons to believe that, that the experience for the new popular library would necessarily be different. Yeah, in the old libraries like jQuery and Dojo, I mean, a lot of the successful methods and modules have been brought into the browser. I mean, Dojo had a lot of its array methods brought in, whereas, you know, jQuery had the query selectors and and everything brought in and standardized in a way that have made people, have given the people the ability to move on from adding those libraries. It's just pure functionality and actually picking frameworks that take it to the next step and toward actually building a full, complete site. Do we kind of expect the same to happen with solutions like React? Are we going to bring in like virtual DOM diffing algorithms in some ways? Or uh, I know with ECMAScript 4, we had like a some sort of templating thought out and then it was abandoned. Do we ever expect to go back to those days or, you know, are they just all solutions that are 
current for now. And in the future, we don't want to prescribe something now and see something better come out in the future. Oh, that's a fascinating question. So maybe one way to describe this, something you're perhaps hinting at, is that when something goes into that standard, you end up baking in one particular semantic, right? Which winds up being something that's very difficult to change its core behavior of later. So for instance, you and I might want the equality operator in JavaScript to stop being insane. (laughs) No, I I like it. (laughs) Let's just say we all preferred that. (laughs) Just for instance. Hypothetically speaking. Uh, It's because of the amount of code that now depends on that contract, your ability to change that and iterate on it is extraordinarily limited. So all the additions that you add are now path dependent on the set of things that you have added already. Your ability to change those behaviors winds up evaporating. So one of the benefits of taking a piecemeal and minimal approach is that you end up laying it brick by brick. And you can see where the brick is, right? You don't You don't have to trust that you backed up the dump truck full of bricks, popped it in exactly the correct speed and velocity to lay them all in a neat row. And because that just doesn't happen, right? So you want to lay them kind of brick by brick, and you want to ensure that each of them integrates well with the things around it. And so there was some argument for query selector all, right? I think that's one good example. There's one argument that it was a good thing at the right time. And I think there are a lot of other arguments that it was totally broken and done entirely wrong. And I think some folks from the community, including myself, provided some of this feedback to browser engineers at the time where we said, look, this sounds nice. It's good that you're building this in so you don't necessarily have to send all this code, but you're actually not solving this problem because these other systems return a list, but that list has an extensibility point attached to it. And it doesn't actually just reuse the document's query engine, which starts from the root node. It starts from whichever node you invoke the query engine from. And so... One of the things this highlights is that browser engineers and web developers tend to come from different pools. Like I always joke that you don't get to the end of the web development boss fight, get handed a copy of uh, Visual C++ and a checkout of Chromium. Like that's not kind of how it generally goes. So (laughs) it's not as though everyone who works in a browser is is an expert web developer. Um, And in fact, much the opposite. So the amount of cross pollination between these communities can be lower than I think almost anyone in the web development world expects. And that means that it's possible to just design the wrong thing. But it is also possible to take the relative lack of constraints from the web development side of this perspective, and then just assume that things are as easy for browser engineers as they are for web developers. And it is almost never the case that that's true. <laughs> for, for some of the previously discussed reasons, but also for performance and implementation cost reasons. We don't get to write it in JavaScript. We have to write it in C++ or Rust or something else. And that means that it has to integrate with a bunch of other systems, and the testing burden is very high, and the performance constraints are exotic. So you, know, you have to pay attention. If you're going to add a new property to the Node class in C++ in Blink today, I'll tell you, that you'd either have to add it to this kind of side structure and hope it doesn't get used very much or add it directly to the interface and then do, I don't know, weeks of work to prove that it wasn't going to regress memory significantly on top sites. (laughs) Just moving the code around can turn into a very difficult challenge. And that's not an excuse for reducing the rate of iteration or progress. It's all to just provide context about how much evidence we should have to be building up to justify moving some stuff into the platform. So... All that sounds like a downer, and you shouldn't do it, and you shouldn't try, and I think that's not true. 
I think we should do it and we should try. So you asked specifically about React. There are lots of libraries that are doing functional reactive updates. And so if you think about the way that that, that, that works end-to-end in the systems that have been created here, like the browser engineer's sort of approach will be to look across all the systems that are doing work in this style and go, what is the common set of things that they're doing? It turns out that not all of them do diffing, right? Like diffing is only one approach to updating in a functional reactive environment. Like the idea that you build an entirely separate tree in memory and then have to keep it around in order to do this. Now we do this for some of our data structures, but you know we we had this parallel tree for layout and rasterization, and now we're moving to some internal immutable data structures for this layout ng project. So those data structures may not be exactly what we want to standardize. It may be that we want to standardize the effect and then allow ourselves to iterate internally on that. Like the tools that we have inside the browser to optimize an implementation are pretty radically different to the ones that are available to a web developer. So what we do see, however, is that almost every library wants the ability to find its previously located parts that are not themselves DOM elements and then do operations relative to them in the DOM. So if you've generated a DOM at one point and you've got some process for saying relative to that previously constructed structure, I'd like to do this thing to it, either create a range and replace it or move some element before or after it or move around some stuff inside of it. That can be a huge performance boost to almost all of these libraries, almost no matter what approach to generating a new UI in response to state changes is. So you see things like proposals for template partial updates in web components. So there's a template element now. And so that template element might give us a sort of template parts And the template parts could be these sort of lightweight handles to locations in DOM that can be moved around without some of the slowness that comes from the existing range system. So if you try to do this with ranges, and a lot of frameworks have, what they hit is that there is a piece of the contract about ranges and their live updating behavior that makes them pretty unusable in these situations. And so template parts would give you a lightweight way that is more usable by frameworks to do this so that they would be able to stop paying the tax for that fraction of their framework. So they'd be able to drop that out and not have to necessarily send it to the client. And so that's the sort of like piecemeal improvement, which might, from the perspective of someone who's just writing JSX, never see, right? Like almost nobody who's writing JSX sees the React DOM create element methods being called. They don't actually look at that code most of the time. I can tell you for a fact that almost no one who writes React apps today actually looks at the content of their bundles. They're not pulling them apart and looking at them pretty printed the way I am. Well, it's magic. (laughs) You just accept it as magic and go on. It ain't magic. It's polyfills for things the browser already had. (laughs) At least the first third of it. So you get to the situation, right, where the browser engineer will try to ask, what is the way in which I could reduce the tax rate for the thing that's actually common? How could I make this common infrastructure that everyone has access to all the time in a way that can stand the test of time that is not going to be surprised when everyone moves to the new framework because it is a common enough thing that people will still want to do it? And that doesn't just service one customer, right? Like if you make, I don't know, React or maybe Preact faster, is that going to be the thing that is most impactful that you could have spent time on? Now, I think there's an argument to be made here that there's stuff to do specifically in this location. So you see Shubi Paniker, a colleague of mine, working with that team on a scheduling API. So one of the one of the gnarly things in framework land these days is CPUs aren't very fast in constrained environments, which is most users' phones. And frameworks are starting to do 
ever more work per UI update. It's funny, I, I keep telling people that React never said it was fast. It only said it was surprisingly fast given how much work it's doing. And I don't think anyone disagrees with that, right? Like, <laughs> I think that's that was its opening line when React came out, that you won't believe that this works, but here it is, and it's faster. That, that has been the defensible claim the whole time, right? Is that it is surprisingly fast, not that it is absolutely fast. And so the surprising speed is surprising given how much work it keeps you from having to do, right? So that's a good thing. And enabling that to happen at lower cost is great. And so if you have if you get yourself into a position where you're doing too much work, you need to break that work up, it sure would be great if the platform had a way to help you synchronize or schedule or sequence that work better. Being cooperatively multi-threaded is a real pain in the pants a lot of the time. So, so that's work that can reduce a bunch of tax that developers are causing users to pay with their network time and bandwidth and CPU and battery in a way that can pay off for everyone. So that's a good approach. And, you know, you do see us engaging and trying to improve the situation in those ways. Does that mean we'll get a better way to introspect uh, available memory and things like that? Or are we still going to be cut off from those sides of things? It's just more about providing structures to help synchronize data or transformations or things that go on. Memory is a hard one. I think there was progress at the last web performance face-to-face, which was, I think, I want to say last week or the week before, regarding a memory use API. There are a lot of ways to get information from the web platform, but not through the front door. So, for instance, let's say you create an out-of-process iframe to pleasecrashthistab.com. I don't think that domain exists. Uh, if it does, please please don't register. It will now. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's say you create an out-of-process iframe to that, and that thing promises to start collaborating with you by post messaging to you every so often and telling you how many objects it's allocated so far or how much heap memory it's allocated with, I don't know, typed erase, right? Eventually, you run that process out of memory and that on browsers where that process is isolated, that crashes the iframe and then you get your last number and then you know roughly how much memory your device has or that process was allocated. So that'll tell you kind of what your limit is. That's a very oblique way to go get that number. <laughs> what you really want, and it's slow and expensive too, what you really want is a less invasive way to get that kind of roughly bucketed number. And so the debate in these cases winds up being about how can you do good rough bucketing that's still useful without providing way too much information, way too much fine granularity information about what was the size of the image the user just downloaded through a side channel. Like you don't want to leak did they just go download this one cat GIF who, that you happen to know the size of, uncoded or de- decoded, right? You mean you don't want to give MD5 sums to all of your... There, there is a reliable concern with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Particularly in the current era of side channel fun and games. Yeah. yeah, VR is going through the same thing. There's a lot of ways to personally identify a machine based on those statistics. So memory is worried with the same privacy issues with fingerprinting and things like that? Specifically, the temporal component of fine-grained probes, yeah. So, so remember, the, the web is a dynamic composition system that is not trusted to understand everything about your system because we need to make sure that we defend the line that you don't feel like it's going to be a bad time if you click on a link. The Control-Z ability of that behavior has to persist. So that means that we have to be defensive and paranoid by default. No, we get some of those things wrong, but I think you can say that the, the web platform has been one of the better stewards of that kind of a contract over the last 20 years. So yeah, so that's the sort of headwind that a quote-unquote easy 
addition to the platform faces. And so what you'll probably get is a memory pressure event, which is to say, hey, this renderer thinks that you're you know, within some large quantum of potential badness. You might want to do what you can to flush the buffers and, and hit the brakes. Yeah, even that would be actually pretty great. <laughs> Just knowing when you're going to crash a tab, yeah. But that's the kind of design thinking that you have to go through. I think it's worth calling out. You mentioned E4X back in the ES3, ES4 days. So E4X was a variant of ECMAScript 3 that had XML mixed in as a sort of a template literal language, which you can sort of think of JSX as a spiritual successor to. Well, I used MXML, which was almost a direct kind of brethren to. And it definitely had problems. I could imagine if templating was adopted then, then we may not have been able to switch away from it or provide different solutions as we have so far. You would have been able to. Uh, the, the cost would have been the same, but the relative cost would have been much higher, right? Like the thing that happens here is like, remember how we used to do like nine grid hacks with tables to get rounded corners? <laughs> I do now. <laughs> you can still do that. If you, don't, if you don't like the rendering that the browser provides, I guarantee you we've made tables much faster than they ever were back then. We've got a whole new set of beautiful image formats. You can pick whatever color, shape, design you'd like for your new custom rounded corner thing, but it's so expensive relative to the CSS variant of it that the relative expense makes it look less like a good idea. So the absolute cost of continuing to be able to do that is still there. The option value is exactly the same, but the relative value is not the same. (laughs) And so this is a cautionary tale in why browser features that are regretted live so long, because they get heavy use, right? Today, if you look at offline Google Docs, you know, we've poured so much money, frankly, and effort into making app cache work for that system that I can tell you that from the inside of this process, it has been many years since we started engaging with that team to try to get them to move over to service workers. But there's always one extra thing that you have to do to get things moved over once sort of an attractive misfeature has really gotten its hooks in. So there's so many reasons to be cautious and take these things at a pace where you really understand the uses for them and try to keep them minimal and layered, right? A good layered platform lets you only replace the pieces that you need to replace as opposed to everything. So our approach for something like JSX would be to try to figure out like, well, what is the, what is the layered approach to that? So JSX today is a fork of JavaScript. So it actually has forked JavaScript semantics. The parsing and the grammar are different to regular JavaScript. And it has forked HTML, grammar, and semantics. Like you cannot reuse the HTML parser as we know it today for JSX. It would not fly. So JSX is a custom parser. It is a new syntax and grammar that has to be explained at runtime in terms of those other object models and then generate them with high fidelity. And then we have to find out if we can make it context-free, which is not at all clear. So just from the perspective of what is the project to make this thing fly inside of the JavaScript language specification, I think you'd be looking at a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where you get something like template literals instead. So you see frameworks leaning heavily on template literals because they are already integrated into our parsing and our understanding of the system in a dynamic way. And that makes them significantly easier to go and build on top of without having to introduce new parsers and new grammar. Does that, does that help like explain the lay of the land? 
I think it does. You know, I understand a lot of it's about this incrementalism, you know, in a way to push forward things without too much risk. Oh, it's interesting. Questions of relative analysis of risk, I think, come in. Like, you say too much, but I push, I think, as hard as anyone to expand what the web can do and to make it a good platform for app developers. I hope that's not too self-absorbed a statement. I think it's the case that we don't do enough in a lot of places, right? We should do more and we should go faster. And so one of the projects that I've helped to lead over the last four or five years here inside the Chrome team has been to rework the way we do all of our standards engagement so that we can move faster, that we can launch features with lower velocity, that we can try stuff out. So there's this whole origin trials process now where we have the ability today to, like we've had this idea of flags, like you could go flip a flag, you know, like in um, about config in Firefox forever, right? You could go flip a flag at runtime and try something out. But what we always got back was, well, I can't try that out with my users. I can't try that out in live traffic. So origin trials are actually a way for you to get a key for your website. And as long as you promise pinky swear to uh, provide feedback about whether or not the API met your needs and you're willing to take some breakage, like we guarantee that we'll break the API, but you're willing to then put this key that we vend you in the top of your document, we'll give you access to APIs that way. And you can try them out for a while with live traffic. And so this is how we're starting to move this whole sort of relatively speculative, intuition-based, iterative process to be on a more evidentiary footing where we can go try stuff out with developers and, and see how it works and get their feedback and then publish that feedback if we get enough of it and can anonymize it. And moving this process more towards science and less toward guessing by powerful people is a pretty long-running project of mine and a shared goal on the team. And I think that's a change that I want us to continue. And the goal of all of that is not just to change the process, but it is to explicitly accelerate the rate of progress that we're able to deliver. So yeah, we should be doing more. (laughs) The amount of risk that we should be taking should probably be larger, but we should be taking those risks in ways that don't cause us to have to put it all on black, right? We should be able to make measured risks when we want to go take some syntactic approach that hasn't been tried before, or some new way of introducing a feature or some new feature that we want to try out. And giving ourselves that flexibility has been pretty transformative. And as long as we're talking about Twitter drama, there was some interesting pushback in the last couple of days about people looking at an early proposal for a new element and saying, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, the Chrome folks just said they were going to do intent to implement, right? Which sounds very scary. But in our process, intent to implement is at, like, the front. It's like the very beginning of the process. It says, hey, here's an FYI. We're going to go put some code over here, maybe. Uh, And if you are the owner of this directory or you work in a system that's related, it's probably a good time to go ask them where their design docs are at. (laughs) Um, And a good prompt for the folks who are doing the work to say, hey, here's what we're thinking about. Um, With a commitment to iterating on that for any web-exposed feature. Because there's all these steps in the middle intent to experiment where you can go run these origin trials. And then eventually it's intent to ship. But you have to bring a lot of evidence to intent to ship. And you probably have to have had good conversations in public about the design of your thing, lots of iteration and proof that people actually want it, that it solves an important problem in a a good way. And so one of the things that we're noticing is that because we now have this new process that is both some degree longer, that is to say, like if we just get a bee in our bonnet, the process forces us to be more temperate. You can't just go with the go fever and hit the launch button. You actually have to go through many phases to get something out and that there's a bunch of required reviews in the, in the process, those things are 
unusual still in other browser processes, although I note that Mozilla is catching up with many of their processes. And, you know, we've adopted some of their rigor around testing as part of this set of changes. And so, you know, we're all collectively learning from each other. And I think we stole the origin trials idea from Jacob Rossi, who was at Microsoft at the time. So there's, you know, a bunch of these things where as browser vendors, we're just sort of learning to do a better job of how to do this. But yeah, the perception may not have caught up yet. And it may just be that we have better endowed our web platform team such that we can afford to implement and iterate, whereas some other teams are not funding their browser engine teams at a reasonable level and therefore only implement things that are pretty late stage. So the the perception might be that implementation means you're at the end. So. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually did an origin trial for WebVR back in the day when Chrome was starting to introduce it and Firefox had it. And it gave me a chance to actually put it on my website and play around with it a little bit and get kind of an idea of how it was going to work. And I think Chrome took it back and changed some things after the fact from what it learned. But just having it out there and having the ability to interact with it early was nice for people kind of on the edge of those standards. Yeah, and so for a feature like that, where it's exploratory, right? Like, this may be the future of all computing. We don't know. <laughs> but it's certainly not the present of all computing yet. Preserving that space to iterate is extraordinarily important, right? Like, because of all of the costs that we were just talking about earlier, right? The, the fact that you don't really get a mulligan on the platform. If something winds up being heavily used, you can't really change it. Your API and semantics become path-dependent. Preserving that space to iterate allows folks, so you saw the web VR stuff, now they've iterated out to the WebXR APIs. And, you know, the judgment at the time was, if we went straight to stable with it the way that Microsoft and Mozilla had done, if we had added our vote implicitly to that population, the working group at the time were saying, well, this is probably not the eventual API that we want, but this is fine for now. And we said, kind of, no, that's kind of not how it works. <laughs> Maybe you'll get lucky and know what it, we'll use it at all and you'll still get a chance to take it back. Like we have this threshold for these deprecations where if something is below, I think it's 0.03 or 0.05% of page loads, maybe you can try to take it off. But if it's out to stable, you have no control. Like you've lost all ability to even try. So the origin trial system gives us some confidence about how much traffic is actually using a particular feature and that winds up being fundamental. That gives us the ability to not just watch who's using it, but also to prevent users that are far too large. Like if Bing.com decides that they want to put WebVR on their homepage in Chrome, we have a conversation. <laughs> we say, can you run that as a fractional trial? Because we don't really want you to blow out over these thresholds that we can't take it back because we might change our mind. And that's worked out for WebVR, right? The WebXR APIs are different. And the way that the gamepad and controller device stuff worked is very different to the way it was when those initially went out. And if we had shipped to stable instead of going to origin trials, we would have been in a world of hurt. You'd been stuck with it. That's right. So with the introduction of like imports and standard libraries, do you think any of that might change in a way that you could introduce more origin and risk your things through these standard libraries rather than making them universally part of the whole experience? Or is it one of the same? I don't see how they wind up being very different. So what you get from built-in modules, which I think is what the team has been calling those, we get from built-in modules is a question worth interrogating. And I've asked the team several times, what are you actually getting here? Because <laughs> uh, it looks like on the surface, you might be getting the ability to do exactly that, to maybe dynamically import code somehow. But we already had component updaters. It's certainly a flag that says, hey, I'm using this thing. It gives you a chance to load it in versus needing it as part of the DOM, right? Sure. So making it asynchronous as a, as a use 
could be one of those values. Now, there are other ways to achieve that. So, for instance, if you were to call get user media, right, that might be a signal that we should go download the WebRTC stack in the background. So there are already asynchronies in the API service that would give us hooks to do that kind of dance. You do have to design an asynchronous moment to make that happen, but eh, once you've got it, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. Things that you get from the contract pretty directly include lower memory use, so we don't have to create DOM bindings for all of the interfaces that you would like to use because they would only be bound to the scope whenever the import is actually imported, right? Whereas today, we have interfaces and bindings because of the way WebIDL works. You have all this stuff laying around in the window object all the time everywhere, and that makes JavaScript context slower to start up and heavier weight to use, which is not great, right? We, we have lots of reasons to want to make those cheaper. But beyond that, the thing on the other side of this thing that you would import, you're going to have to standardize it, right? Like, we standardize the internationalization APIs. We standardize all of the JavaScript standard library. We standardize the DOM, which is a most heavily used standard library in JavaScript, in the browser at least. And so I don't think the standardization barrier would go down, right? Yeah, certainly not unless you had like a tag that you were indicating that this is a potential feature that could get dropped in the future. Uh, but this is the trick, right? Once the browser makes it cheap and gives it to everyone, yeah, you're right. Origin trials would be a way around it. Like if we could restrict use to some privileged set, call it early adopters or people who, you know, you could imagine some crazy world where like it was like domain squatting, but for uh, <laughs> but for access to these things. But that's not particularly fair. We're here to serve everyone and we want to do a good job and ensure that the platform serves everyone's needs and not just the folks who happen to get in early. Well, the rest could polyfill on the tag you know, with mappings and whatnot, right? Right. So so for them, it's expensive, and for you, it's cheap, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's always nice spending someone else's money. <laughs> it is. That's why I'm trying to suggest this. I am kind of curious about, you know, do you take things like the, uh, you know, we're talking about kind of batched DOM operations, right? Which is my shorthand for just saying VDOM and surgical updates and all the various things that the different toolkits are doing. But like, what does it look like to have that iteration back and forth in a way that we can figure out enough to create a standard, to create a good API from that? Yeah, that's a great question. So in a lot of these cases, something may be an obviously good idea. That is to say, there might be a space that is worth exploring and collaborating about. But until you get engaged developers working with engaged browser vendors, nothing happens. So you can have a bunch of community enthusiasm to go say, you know, Go put X in the browser, you cowards. And if there are no browser engineers in the room, you're going to have a really hard time moving that thing down the field because the power in the situation comes from the ability to ship bits, right? Like the people who can actually write the laws to lower your taxes, (laughs) the people who can actually lower your taxes, and those are the browser engineers. But the people who can tell you whether or not it's a good idea are not the browser engineers. There's no fitness function in the standard. Standards don't tell you whether or not something is actually going to solve an important problem in a good way. So one of the pathologies that we diagnose frequently in browser development is that you get rooms full of people who are either mostly browser engineers or quote-unquote old-timers plus browser engineers who don't have the problem of the day, talking with people who could in theory solve it, and then coming to some groupthink solution about a rumored idea, um, which is, you know, off by a good 30 or 40 degrees, 
And then everyone sort of has to live with it. And so the better way of working is to get people who have the problem talking with people who want to help solve it and do that iteration in public. There are lots of places that this has worked well. There's lots of places where this is broken down. But the general way of doing this that I prefer is to get people to do this in forums where you don't have a big spun-up working group that is already dedicated to producing a specification that was preordained in its scope. Because when you go to a formal chartered working group, it has a charter. And that charter tells everyone, including the chairs of the working group, what they're going to deliver. And so that means that by the time you get into the beginning or get to the beginning of that chartering process, you basically have to know what the end looks like. And when you're exploring a new space like XR or some other brand new thing, you're very far away from that. Like you, you kind of don't know what you don't know yet, and you need the space to go figure it out collaboratively without everyone breathing down your neck to ship something yesterday. So this is where community groups, you know, the WebVR or WebXR community group has done a really great job here. The WebAssembly working group has done a really good job, I think, of coming to this kind of iterative thing. I'd like to hope that we did a decent job in the service worker era, but a lot of these new incubations are happening at the Web Incubation Community Group, YCG. And that is a, I believe, <laughs> if, if there's one piece of actionable stuff out of this podcast, it'll be, if you're really interested in the future of the web platform and you would like to make a difference, there's a bunch of browser engineers who spend time looking at YCG and working in YCG, and you can go find them there. And you can participate in the existing incubations where new ideas are getting floated and people are trying stuff out. And if you see something that you think is off by 30 degrees or doesn't, doesn't have the feature that would make it possible for you to solve your problem there, that's the one of the most impactful places that you can participate. It should also be noted that the timescales are not going to be where people hope they are, naively. If you make a precise cut in the YCG, you might save future use thousands of person hours, but you may also not be able to reap any of those rewards for a couple of years. So setting all those expectations correctly up front is one of the most, I think, overlooked and potentially useful things that we can do as a community because it is possible to change the direction of the platform. It is possible to collaborate with browser engineers. It is possible to get big new things done, but we can't expect groups that are chartered to do an old thing or that know exactly what their agenda is going to be to be the form where you're going to do that. And you can't expect browser engineers who are otherwise attached to some other projects to stop that project and take on your thing. So you got to go find the space where you have room to iterate and find the people that want to do it with you. So you're saying there's there's a lot of work that can be done kind of early on in the idea phase. And then the thing that I'm kind of wondering about is like, we've thought things through as best as we can. What does that iteration cycle look for what you're talking about with the kind of early implementation where people start talking more about what works for them and doesn't work for them? Yeah, so this usually starts in the form of what we call an explainer. So there'll be a bunch of research that hopefully folks will document. Now, when we designed the Promises API for JavaScript, one of the things that Eric Arvidsson and I and Dominic Denicola were doing was that we were sitting down and, you know, going through all the existing Promises libraries and writing down how each of them worked and what was different about them and what their style was and, and what the methods were that they had and their semantics and just trying to do the study, right? You just write down the comparative study of what are people doing and, and what are the problems that they're trying to solve and then trying to get to an understanding of that. I thought that the team that was proposing the Toast element was doing a really good job of that. Like their design repo actually includes a pretty full study of existing practice around this area and this control and what the sort of degrees of freedom are in the design space. And that lets you write out what you call an explainer. And the explainer starts with a problem statement that says, hey, here's a bunch of problems that we really 
think are worth solving. Here's kind of why we think they're important. Here's the set of problems that we're not going to solve in this effort. So if you want to solve them, it's fair warning to go try a different, spin up your own repo and try something else. And then you uh, explore the space. Like you weigh some a bunch of alternatives and you write out some example code for each of them and you uh, don't commit to a formal design or a formal spec at that point, but you sort of weigh them up and then you uh, talk them out. You file issues and you figure out what they should look like and if you've got evidence about how it should work and how it has worked inside of your product and that sort of thing, those are moments where it can be really, really impactful. And then, you know, once that kind of iterative process settles down a bit, you'll start to see that explainer document coalesce around maybe one or two of the various considered alternatives. And then you might start to see an intent to implement, right? And those things can happen at the same time, right? Like you have people who have been talking in private for a while saying, hey, we talked about a bunch of stuff. Here's what we talked about. Still open to suggestions, still open to change. Um, here's our best shot at it so far, but let's talk it out. And, and here's maybe a prototype for how it could work. You know, like you mentioned Web Components earlier. The first Web Components prototype uh, was in 2011. You know, like we changed a ton of stuff between that prototype and even what shipped in V0, let alone what shipped in V1. So that's the value of having engaged implementers is that you can then get those prototypes and start to kick the tires. And now that we have origin trials, we can start to even kick the tires out in the field. Uh, without having to hand around custom Franken builds of Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> then the, the kick and tires is that what's a good kind of audience to start stress testing that? Is it framework authors? You were talking about how like benchmarks are a good way to, you know, spur action, right? Like, is that something where we have bloggers messing around with ideas, framework authors messing around with ideas and talking about it? What's kind of like the best next step for that process? I generally think of there being a bit of a hierarchy of timescales. So web developers operate on a project-by-project timescale. So, you know, that can be two weeks or six months, or maybe it's as long as a year or two. Framework authors are building systems that live two, five, six, eight years. And so their timescales tend to just start longer and be longer. So they are more conservative, but they have a broader view. They're not looking specifically at exactly all the artifacts in their project, but they're extrapolating over multiple projects and taking artifacts from them. Their timescales are longer, and their support matrix is worse (laughs) often because it winds up being a union across all the sites that they want their framework to be used in. And then their ability to provide global feedback is larger. So they will have more understanding about, quote-unquote, what people are doing rather than a very situated understanding from one particular product. And so those are very different communities. And so, like, you can take the leading edge of the single project idea and, like, someone fiddling around with some 3D stuff long before you got to WebGL is a very different environment. Are people doing these little design explorations not constrained by browser compatibility is just, again, kind of very different. And then, you know, a production site with hundreds of millions of users. So you kind of really want to get into a place where you can be talking with folks who can afford to iterate quickly, who have some ability and bandwidth to think through the future with you. And that's that's usually folks who are experimenting out at the edge. Even if in their day job, they're library authors, right? Like, they're probably not going to go experimenting with their library. They might be pushing the very limits of what the browser has already shipped in order to get to some compatibility. But... They're probably not going to be out there spending a ton of time, usually, uh, on speculative stuff because they, they probably can't afford it. At SitePen, we have a lot of people working in Dojo that I think are having fun doing little speculative exercises every now and then. 
Well, that's awesome. You guys should come join us over at YCG and, and talk through what you what you want to see on the platform. Cause oh, yeah, for sure. You can have a huge impact. Yeah, We're trying to externalize as much of this, this conversation about what the platform should look like next as possible. Did you guys get all your questions answered? <laughs> We've talked long enough. I think we should be good. <laughs> we have. Well, Alex talked most of it. Sorry. Oh, that's the point, right? I don't know. No, you're fine. That's no, you're the the, yeah, that's you're the, the guest. Point. We sufficiently grilled him, though. So, Well, Alex, it was really nice having you on. Thanks for coming on and talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we'll have to have you back another time. Talk a little bit more about your love of TypeScript. I, I love TypeScript. Yeah. TypeScript is great. I know. But, <laughs> again. Why do you hate TypeScript. It's timescales. It's timescales. Yeah, ha- it's, it's the slow grinding gears of the different timescales, right? You know, I gotta say, Brian, I think it's maybe the pot in the kettle. <laughs> <laughs> maybe just a little bit. Just a little bit. We've become trolls in our old age. What's this we? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, and I uh, look forward to having you back. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.